Yes, till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ, I stand. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Well, I haven't had the privilege of wearing a uniform, but I do have the privilege of standing in the presence of many of the men and women who have served or are serving in the military. This past Thursday was Veterans Day. Uh, if you're a vet or you are currently serving, would you please stand so we can recognize you? Would you please stand up? Thank you. Thank you for your service. We have a number of Grace Lifers from Middle East missions, from Korean War, Vietnam. I think I see somebody in the back from the Civil War. Just kidding. Just kidding. Seriously, we we thank you for your service. Would you please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. John 11, 35, and we'll be there shortly. Uh, If you looked at your bulletin this morning, you may have noticed a theme or a sort of mini-series forming from my preaching this quarter. At the end of the summer, we looked at the light of the Lord, the light of the Lord. This is that uh, Shekinah glory or dwelling presence of God as light. As a visible light from Genesis to Revelation, we saw that the glory of God was, is, and will be revealed. It's all throughout the Old Testament, in the Garden of Eden, on the face of Moses, in the tabernacle of Israel, in the temple of Jerusalem. God's glory was on display, which then came to us, revealed in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. And that light of the Lord, that Shekinah glory is promised to be revealed in the future as well, revealed for the whole world to see in the second coming of Christ. Oh, we long for that day of his return. But in the meantime, we seek to walk as children of the light, the light of the Lord. Uh, Then last month, I shared with you the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the loving kindnesses of the Lord. Remember, it's loving kindnesses, not loving kindness. Uh, Because there are many, specifically seven realities concerning this attribute of his to encourage us in our daily walk. The Lord's loving kindnesses are uninfluenced. They're eternal, sovereign, infinite, immutable, holy, and gracious because he is every single one of those qualities to perfection. And we said when you're tempted to doubt, uh, when you're tempted to despair, wondering does, does he really care? Does he know, does God know what's going on in my life that we're to look to those loving kindnesses, the loving kindnesses of the Lord? This morning, building on these two studies, I want to share with you another concerning the Lord, and that's the lamentations of the Lord, the Lord's lamentations. On three occasions, we are told that Jesus wept. Our Lord lamented. And it'll be interesting to see if you can recall these three And I believe our time in in looking at them, refreshing our memories of Christ's cries, it will change how you cry as a believer. That's right. I said how you cry, how you deal with sorrow, how you lament. Lamenting or lamentations can be defined succinctly here as an expression of sorrow. If you're taking notes, an expression of sorrow is how we would define it. We lament when we grieve over loss or, or feel helpless over our situations or we sorrow over our own sin. Lamenting is not the same as crying. 
And it's been said to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. To cry is human, but to lament is Christian. It's a subtle difference, but it's an important distinction we need to make. The difference between a cry and a lament is much like the difference between honor and respect. There's a slight difference between the two, honor and respect. Honor is a gift. You know this, right? Honor is a gift and respect is earned. We're to honor, as an example, the office of the President of the United States, no matter who sits in its seat. And let me just say, no Christian should be caught up in a culture of code words for insulting a president. Honoring the office is what we're called to do. The President of the United States, doesn't matter really the political position of authority, were to honor that. Now, you may not respect the individual, past or present, and we're not just talking about the presidency, but his or or her actions in a position of authority, they shouldn't surprise you when they grieve you. When unbelievers behave like unbelievers, that shouldn't come as a surprise. What that should do is cause us even more to be on our knees praying for that individual, because that's what we're called to do. We're called to honor the individual. Again, honor is a gift, but respect is earned. You may not respect the individual, but honor the office. And we need to lead as a church. We need to lead in that, especially in this country in this day. And in much the same way, crying is human, but lamenting is Christian. Crying is human, but lamenting is Christian. First crying, you're crying something that comes naturally to us, believe it or not. We step into this world with a cry. Uh, Ben mentioned the birth of Uriah Matthew to the Burgers. Came into this world with a cry. As a matter of fact, each of us come into this world with a cry. You don't remember it, but I can assure you that the first sound you uttered after leaving the warm and protected domain of your mother's womb was a cry. In fact, it was a protest. We enter this world wailing, but we don't stop crying after birth, do we? It continues because the world is broken. Because we live in a fallen world. After the fall of Adam and Eve, our reality became infected with the effects of sin. Many of those effects of sin cause abuse, addiction, cancer, uh, relational conflict, loneliness, all leading to death. It's natural, but that's a cry. That's a cry. But what we will see this morning exemplified by our Lord Jesus Christ, is a lament. And a lament is a form of prayer. It's an expression of sorrow to the one who is both sovereign and good. God is sovereign and God is good. And isn't it interesting that the God-man Jesus, throughout his earthly life, in his humanity, he displayed a variety of emotions. While we don't read of it, in scripture, surely he must have laughed. I, I believe the Lord laughed. I just want to say that. I believe he laughed. Uh, whether it was with the disciples or maybe hanging with, around the children in some way or even the comments the crowds would make, I believe the Lord must have, sooner or later, he must have laughed. In the Psalms, it tells us that God laughs. It, granted, it's a sarcastic laugh. It says when the kings of the world set themselves against God and they They take counsel against God. It says that he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Can't blame him for that. Now, we know that Jesus experienced emotions, and yet 
It's strange that nowhere does it tell us that he actually laughed, but of course he was truly human in every respect, yet without sin. Matthew 8 says he was surprised. The word is marveled. It says, now when Jesus heard this, he marveled. You know, he was angry in the temple twice, overturning the tables of the uh, money changers. And we'll see this morning that he was sorrowful. He was sorrowful. Isaiah 53.3 is the text I've kind of tethered to this morning's sermon. You need not turn there. I have it in your bulletin for you. But it describes, Isaiah describes in 53.3, really he, he predicted how Jesus was to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The sorrow of the heart in all its forms is indeed in view here. And Jesus is the only one who qualifies completely for this title. You know, those closest to him failed to fully understand and appreciate him in his life. Uh, One denied him publicly three times. Another betrayed him outright. His enemies were relentless. His people rejected him. He was acquainted with grief. It's most certainly an accurate statement and a fulfilled prophecy from Isaiah regarding the suffering servant. Spurgeon once preached that he is the sovereign of sorrow. I love that. The sovereign of sorrow. Weeping while riding in triumph in the midst of his followers. A hearty amen to that. This leads us to the three occasions, three of the sources of his sorrow, Lamentations of the Lord. These are, there are two passages in the um, Gospels and one in the Epistles teaching, as we've said, that Jesus wept. Our subject is not the Lamentations of Jeremiah, but the Lamentations of the Lord. I'm going to give them to you now if you're taking notes, these three here. The Lord lamented first for Lazarus, we'll see in John chapter 11. We'll look at that in a moment. And second here, the Lord lamented for Jerusalem. And that's in Luke 19. It's a stirring passage, and I hope you'll see this one in a new light. And then third here, the Lord lamented for the cup. This is accepting the cup of suffering. It's a result of our sin in Hebrews 5, 7. I know you've been waiting patiently with your Bibles open to John 11. So let's look at those verses. Let's look at verses 30 to 40. I'll read these verses, verses 30 to 44 in John chapter 11. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where Have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lost. Jesus said, remove the stone. 
Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be a stench, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? It's like, and I told you so. Verse 41, so they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. You ever use that phrase? You're loud enough to wake the dead? Well, that's what Jesus did here. Verse 44, the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And so Lazarus, as you know, you're familiar with this passage, I assume, is resurrected. And in verses 33 and 35, they communicate profoundly the humanity of the Lord Jesus, don't they? The expressions of, of Jesus' mourning, they moved him deeply. Verse 33, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Some commentators uh, struggle with the translation of this verse, and rightly so, in that it fails to capture the, the anger side of it, the anger and the grief a person goes through when a loved one dies. Deeply moved and troubled, yes, but the emotion, the overflow in his, in his own spirit is likely, I would agree here, due to the Lord being in the presence of the greatest human enemy, and that's death. This would also be his enemy in just a few days. He would confront it head on, on the cross. It's much like when I go to the hospital and I see, say, children suffering from cancer. My emotions start to well up inside and I get to the point, I say, I hate cancer. I hate it. It's a sin. It's a result of sin. Product of the fall. And I think this is the kind of reaction the Lord was having. Verse 35 Jesus is asked to see Lazarus' tomb in which he is overcome by emotion. And as we know, Jesus wept. It's the smallest and perhaps one of the greatest verses in all the Bible. And this gem tells us that Jesus the Lord, the incarnate Son of God, shed tears. First anger, then grief. My goal this morning is not to unpack this entire passage, but let me just say that the Lord had not given into despair. This is not falling into the category of sin in any way, shape, or form. He knew what he was going to do next in raising Lazarus from the dead. Historically speaking, there are some in the early church who have attempted to strike this passage out of the Gospel of John. It's based upon a, a fear that his weeping uh, would in some way contradict the nature of Christ. It's just the opposite. These are not tears of some form of trepidation, but of trust. Look again at verse 41. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. The Lord's lament is in essence a, a prayer and emotional pain. And what might seem like utter darkness is a, a tunnel of trust. And as you go in, 
As you journey through it, you will see light leading to a place that the Christian calls hope. Certainly his tears, Jesus' tears, were generated both by his love for Lazarus and by his grief over the deadly effects of sin in a fallen world. But his lamenting is one of trust in the sovereign goodness of God, in the sovereign goodness of God. Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The Lord's lament is a genuine cry of oneness with the Father, not some form of faithlessness. His cry doesn't diminish in any way his recognition that this situation from the start is entirely in God's hands. And the same could be said of the next occasion here, the next lamentation of the Lord. If you turn over to Luke 19, Luke 19, it's in Luke 19 that the Lord Jesus directs his words to the city of Jerusalem. This is one of the most moving laments, and it is full of emotion. Just hearing it could move you to tears if you sense the feeling that comes from Jesus as he gives this lament over the holy city. Look at verse 41, Luke 19, 41. Actually, I'll read here through 44, which reads, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and, and surround you and hem you in on every side, and, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and you will not leave it, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus wept while the sounds of Hosanna were still ringing in his ears. That's just a few verses back there in verse 38. I mean, it's evident that he loved the city. It's probably originating a little bit with his childhood, a memory of visiting at age 12. You remember his, his parents were headed home and accidentally left him behind. In some sense, they pulled a, a home alone, right, where Jesus is left in the city to fend for himself. And chapter 2 tells us that there's this frantic search that leads them to find the young Jesus. And what's he doing? He's, he's teaching in a synagogue in Jerusalem, and he's surrounded by rabbis and scholars. He loved the city. He loved the people. And he predicted its downfall. Look back just a few chapters. Same book, uh, Luke 13, chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 34. And again, listen to the, the Lord's lament over Jerusalem. 1334. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I want to gather your children together. Just as a hen gathers her young under her wings and, and you would not have it. Now there's a, a literary device that is rare in scripture. 
I mean, it, it occurs at least 15 times in Scripture. It doesn't happen a lot, but enough, right? 15 times is enough. Abraham, Abraham. It's a repetitive use of an address as he was about to sacrifice Isaac, trying to get his attention. Jacob, Jacob. Moses, Moses, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. David's lament, Absalom, Absalom, my son, if I'd only died in your place. Martha, Martha, you are worried and, and, and bothered about so many things. The Lord's referring to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. And then even on the cross itself, my God my God. One of the most powerful is in Matthew 7 where uh, Jesus says that on the last day, people are going to say what? Lord, Lord. Hey, we're Christians. We went to church often enough. We, we gave sometimes to the church. Lord, Lord. To say, Lord, Lord, means to, to say, not only do I know you, but that I know you intimately. I have an intimate, a, a personal relationship with you. And that's why in Matthew 7, that text is so scary. What if he's talking about me? What if he's talking about you? And now here we are in Luke and he gives this woeful lament over Jerusalem. And how does he address the city? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. With the sounds of deep personal affection and loss. He was intimate with this city and its people. Jerusalem is still called today the holy city. Even to this day, it is the most sacred city for three religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. And so now Jesus looks at this city and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her young under her wings and you would not have it. His heart was full of sorrow. He knew from A to Z, from Abel to Zechariah, prophets who had brought his word had been stoned. They had been killed. Yet his love for them is so great. He wanted to gather them as a hen gathers her own chicks, but they were unwilling. He desired intimacy with his people, but they would have nothing to do with him. And what does he lament in verse 35? Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, there is condemnation. There is judgment awaiting you, but I am not done with Israel. And there will be a day in which you will say to me, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it is tragic. It's no wonder that God lamented in the Old Testament with verses like Genesis 6, 6, where he said that he was, the translation is, is really poor. He says he's sorry that he made man on the earth. It's really more of a pity. Or in Ezekiel 33, where in the 
very first verse, he laments over the sin and disobedience of his people. Just imagine what uh, Jerusalem must have looked like when he was saying, when he was weeping, when he was lamenting this prophecy to them. They paid no mind. The temple and the walls all stood strong. The city's full of commerce. People are coming and going. It's just another day. Not even a hint of destruction and desolation. But the Lord's lamentation said, it's coming soon. And in the time frame of a single generation, one generation, all that would be gone. The um, Jewish historian uh, Josephus tells us that some 40 years later, 70 AD, 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered as the Romans overran the rebellious nation of Israel, sending a remnant to attempt to hide within Jerusalem's walls because they thought that that would protect them. You can read all this online. It's accessible. But Josephus writes that the people died of famine. They died of pestilence. It's a tragedy of, of tragedies. Many fell to the swords of their own countrymen. Women devoured the flesh of their own children. All hope was cut off. The roads in the city were so full of dead bodies for a time, they actually tried to bury them. But after a while, it was simply a losing battle. They just couldn't keep up. And that is why we see the Lord's grace and grief in this lament. They killed the prophets, and yet his love reached that deep to them. But we have another uh, lamentation of the Lord to examine, our final one for this morning, and it's mentioned in Hebrews 5, Hebrews 5, 7. If you turn there, please, Hebrews 5. The Lord lamented for Lazarus in John 11. And for Jerusalem in Luke, chapters really 13 and 19. How are you doing? Did you get those two on your own? Did you remember those two? And then we have the third one here in Hebrews 5, 7, concerning the cup of suffering. The cup of suffering. It reads, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Now, this verse relates to the cup of suffering, which was before Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, There's a a passage I'm going to read to you here. You need not turn there. It's Matthew 26, 36 to 39. And it helps to to shed some light for us. It's in uh, Matthew's gospel here. And it reads, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John. And he began to be grieved and distressed. He understood by identifying with us as a man, becoming sin for all those who would believe in him, the severity, the cup that was to come. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Mind you, this is on the night before he goes to the cross. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup, again, the cup of suffering, pass from me. 
yet not as I will, but as you will. Now in our Lord's lament, he's sweating blood. A weeping induced by a great burden of human guilt, but it's not his own. He's sinless. It's that he would bear on the cross sin, our sin. His mourning over the guilt of all mankind is connected to the power of God to deliver him out of death. I want you to see this again, Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And a better translation there would be out of death, to save him out of death. It's speaking of his resurrection. And that is the consistent example we see from our Lord in his laments, looking to God, trusting God. Our crying is indeed tied to our humanity. Yes, but a Christian laments because he or she knows God is the promise keeper. God is sovereign. God is good. You know, to lament is one of the most theologically informed actions, prayers, praises a person can take in a difficult time. Perhaps you've heard of the tragic scene many come upon when they visit orphanages in Russia when they're in the process of adopting a young child they walk into the nursery. They don't even know they're in a nursery because it's so quiet. They, they say it, the silence from the nursery is eerie. The, the babies in the cribs, they, they never cried. Not because they never needed anything, but because they had learned no one cared enough to answer. Children will cry for the love and attention of others. And for the Christian, for the Christian... Our lament comes as a result of our confidence in the love of a heavenly father. He is the greatest caregiver ever. Let me say, if you've, if you've never placed your faith for the, forgiveness of, for the forgiveness of your sins in Jesus Christ, there is no other way to possess the peace that surpasses all understanding. There is no other way to have the assurance that no matter what happens, that he will never leave you, that he will never forsake you. Let today be that day. Let today be that day that you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And for the believer, God does not want you to be alone. He doesn't want you feeling distant. He doesn't want you feeling disconnected, even unequipped. And that takes us to our final passage this morning, Psalm 13. One last turn here. If you'd go to Psalm 13. Psalm 13. If lamenting is a form of prayer and praise and even a proof of our relationship with God, then how do we do it? Over a third of the Psalms are laments. Add to that the book of Lamentations where Jeremiah weeps over the destruction of Jerusalem. And again, the three occasions of our Lord's Lamentations. And we have solid instructions, biblical instruction on how to bring our sorrow to God. You know, lamenting is like an expansive prayer language. We can get better at enduring and, and trusting and waiting 
by learning to lament. Lamenting isn't just about mourning, but it's about longing for God to end the pain. Lamenting has a unique purpose. It's to draw us into trusting God more, to to pour out our fears and frustrations to him, to help us renew our confidence and, and trust in him, especially in the midst of a crisis. And my hope, my hope is that when you are dealing with a difficulty and you are tempted to despair, and you will, if you have not, wow, but you will. It will come. And my hope is that you will turn to this psalm, Psalm 13. And remember these, these elements, these four essential elements of lamenting I'm about to share with you. Maybe later today or tomorrow or sometime this week, why don't you stop and, and just write them in your Bible. Capture them so you don't forget. Let's read the entire psalm for a moment. It's just six verses, and then we'll look at these four principles. Again, this is Psalm 13 to close our time out this morning together. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Okay, let me highlight four elements. Mostly, most laments will feature these, these four here. And the first one is cry. Cry, cry out to God. Cry out to God. It's verse, verse one here in this psalm. Often a lament begins by sharing your heart with God. Verse one, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me. You see, this is a, a gut level honesty of how you are feeling with God. I mean, sure, to, to be silent is easier, but it's not healthier. Listen to Psalm 77, another lament. My, my voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted when I remember God. Then I'm disturbed when I sigh. Then my spirit grows faint. That's a cry. Or the Psalm Ben Ben, uh, read for us earlier, Psalm 42. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Again, cry out to God. Turn to him in your grief, in your sorrow. And then second here, candidly. Candidly. Candidly talk to God about what is wrong. Verse 2 here. Every lament features some kind of candid confession about the pain. Verse 2. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy... Be exalted over me. Essentially, when will this be over? 
And so we're talking candidly with God about what is wrong. While the psalmist knows God is sovereign, he's in control, the honest response is that sometimes, sometimes in life, you know it just doesn't feel like it. It's like you're receiving permission to verbalize the tension that you are experiencing. Now, you have to be careful, of course. There's a solid line here between sharing and sinning, and don't cross it, right? I mean, honesty and humility are the key ingredients, not denial, not concerned about your own dignity. You're talking to Yahweh, remember. Cry candidly, and third here, boldly, boldly, boldly ask for help. Ask boldly for help. This is verses 3 and 4. Seek God's help while you're experiencing the pain. Verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. This is an act of faith. So don't you give in to despair and remain silent. Don't you pull back or live out some form of denial. Yeah, everything's fine. Everything's okay. I'm doing all right. I'm doing okay. And you know that that's not the reality. To lament means it's okay to keep asking God even when it seems the answer is being delayed. Repeated requests, they can become reminders to you of what God can do. It becomes a a renewal of our, our trust in him. It's much like the man who said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. So we cry candidly, boldly, and all the while, number four here, trusting trusting we choose to trust this is verses five and six by by crying out to him by candidly talking to god about what is wrong and asking boldly for help there can be only one destination and that's trust that's verses five and six but i have trusted in your loving kindness my heart shall rejoice in your salvation i will sing to the lord Because he has dealt bountifully with me. You can say that, right? If you look back in the past, you can count his blessings. You can count his mercies. How bountiful he has been with you in your life. And lamenting like this, it it directs our hearts to make a choice. Sometimes daily. To trust in the Romans 8.28 promises behind the pain. Look again at those final two verses. There is trust. There is praise. There is joy. I have trusted in your loving kindness. Rejoice in your salvation. Sing to the Lord. He has dealt bountifully with me. Steve Lawson in his commentary on this psalm outlines it this way. Let me just read to you his outline. I I think it's terrific. You'll see a, a transition from panic, a turning there from panic to praise. Here's his outline. How long will God forget? 
How long will God hide? How long must I be discouraged? How long must I be defeated? Now watch the change that starts to happen. Remember me, O God. Rescue me, O God. I will rely upon God. I will rejoice in God. You see, sorrow is not how the story ends. Sorrow is not how the story ends. It's a distinctly Christian thing to be deeply moved by sin and suffering in the world, while at the same time holding to an immovable joy. That's lamenting. Your lament is not your final prayer. It's a prayer of waiting. It's a a prayer in the meantime. Hebrews 12, 2, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured. He endured the cross and the shame. When the Lord lamented over the death of his friend, his joy was still before him. When the Lord lamented over the stubborn hearts of Jerusalem, his joy was still before him. When the Lord lamented through blood, through sweat and tears about the cup of of suffering and, and the cross, his joy was still before him. He is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, exemplifying what it means to lament. The lamentations of the Lord model for us that through the pain, through the grief, even through the anger, you can choose to trust the one, the only one, who is sovereign and good. God is sovereign and God is good. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word, both the written word in our possession and the living word, Jesus Christ. As we've seen in these texts this morning, may we grieve over our sin as Jesus has. And as we've heard from the psalmist May we learn to bring our sorrow to you, crying candidly, boldly, trusting, recovering and and wrestling with with our own sorrow in a way that brings you the honor and the glory and, and the praise. Even when the afflictions and the and the anguish of this life they threaten to take over, teach us to keep the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in view progressively moving us to uh, a deeper worship, a deeper trust. And again, Father, for those hearts that have been hurting so deeply here in this auditorium this morning, Father, may you lift their eyes up. May you lift their eyes up to where Christ, their Redeemer, is interceding for them in heaven. Lord, uh, assure their hearts with the fact that you can never, ever fail. Where sorrow is present, O God, one day your love will abound. May joy and rejoicing be ours because of you. We worship you and we love you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.